You're listening to Radio Activism. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. There are a number of cringeworthy scenes in activist and what you might call save the world circles. Picture a tall white man in a khaki vest surrounded by happy little African children. He's just finished a project that was his brainchild. But then if you fast forward a year, you find that the project fell apart. He was gone onto other projects and the kids are no better off than they were before he even showed up, maybe worse. This is the savior mentality, and you can find it pretty much anywhere you look. In schools, in legislatures, in faraway countries, maybe in yourself. Jordan Flaherty has written a book about this. It's called No More Heroes, and it lays out how to spot the savior attitude, what's wrong with it, and what you can do instead. The main idea is shut up and listen until you know enough to have something to say. And maybe even then, still stay quiet. It's really about a different kind of leadership, one that's more humble and receptive and, above all, puts the power and the agency in the hands of the people who need help rather than in yourself or in maybe your nonprofit. It's also really about taking a hard look at ourselves, especially if we're people who grew up with the idea that we are smarter and wiser and more capable than other people, and maybe look more deeply at how we can really be of greatest service. That's what the book is about. Let's go now to our conversation with Jordan Flaherty. He's an award-winning journalist and producer, and his new book is called No More Heroes, Grassroots Challenges to the Savior Mentality. Welcome, Jordan, to Radioactivism. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So what do you mean by the Savior Mentality? In my experience, in our culture, in our school system, in our movies, we're taught this idea of change, that Lincoln ended slavery, that the civil rights movement was successful because of the work of MLK or LBJ or JFK, this sort of great man theory of history. We go to movies, we see this hero who's usually white and male that rushes in to save the day. They don't need to consult the people that are changed. And so we're led this false idea of how change happens, this idea that a savior comes in instead of, I think, how change actually happens in the civil rights movement, in the end to slavery, millions of people fighting together, organizing together in a movement. And I think it's a, it's a false idea of how change happens, and especially people from a position of privilege were taught that because of our privilege, we deserve our privilege, and so we have something special to give. So oftentimes, uh, those of us from a position of privilege, we come into a situation, even though we have no skills, no knowledge, we've just sort of been taught that we're the experts and we can come in. And so we don't feel this need to ask people. And so that's the savior mentality, this idea that, that we, from a position of privilege, however you define privilege, are, are in this position to come in and save people without having to consult them, without having to listen, without having to look at how people might already be saving themselves. There's kind of two strains of that, as I saw in your book. One of them is well-meaning people who will go into a situation and really not know what they're doing and mess things up or not be very useful, and we can talk about that. And the other one is considerably more toxic than that and has its roots in kind of conquest and colonialism. People would go into certain situations with the attitude of savior in order to actually conquer I think that's true, but I think even the 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 people of, of best of intentions and you know it's hard to know what what's in somebody's heart. So I try to assume everybody has the best of intentions. I think even with the best of intentions, we're we're influenced by 
this colonial attitude that we're raised with. I, you know, I feel like I, I was raised with this racist attitude, this patriarchal attitude, this colonialist attitude. And, and I think it influences me and I, I try to fight against it. But I think even when people have the best of intentions were were influenced by this attitude that comes from very sinister origins. Well, the sinister origins being things like, I mean, the 19th century and 20th century Native American Indian boarding schools were, what was it? Uh, kill the Indian, save the man. Exactly. Was that the motto? Yeah. So it was like the idea that you could quote unquote s- save people, literally be a savior by eradicating an entire culture. Right. But those people, and again, we don't know what's in their heart, but they were li- literally saying this is what's best for these people. You know, so in their heart, they, or at least how they spoke of themselves, they were saying we're doing what's best for Native people, obviously not using those words. And so... I, you know, in, in a way, it, 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 it's similar. They, it, it's this racist attitude in that case, um, but they were thinking that they were, do, they were doing the, what's best. Well, let's talk about some of the examples in your book. One, one very striking one was the Teach for America program. Supposedly, I mean, on the face of it, a terrific organization, a young college grad might go out and spend two years of their life dedicated to teaching in low-income schools. What's the downside? And I can completely relate to, to doing Teach for America and uh, I, I'm, you know, friends of mine have done it. And, and I do think it, it's a great example because it's a program that brings in young, idealistic people that want to make change. And in the specific example I talk about in New Orleans, where I think it's very clear, but I think it's, it's happened in similar ways in other cities, in most other cities even. In New Orleans, uh, people came in and they were brought into this situation after Hurricane Katrina where the entire staff of the school system had been fired. And this was uh, a school system where 65% of the teachers were black women. Uh, their union was the largest union in the city, the largest source of black political power in, in the city. And these young, idealistic, mostly white people were brought in to displace this teaching force and were brought in as part of this conservative agenda of privatizing the school system, of getting rid of the union, of displacing black political power, uh, and in this very specific context of mass black displacement from the city. The city of New Orleans is still 100,000 less people than it was pre-Katrina. Most of those people are African-American. Many of them are teachers and other professionals who were forced out in this period. So these Teach for America idealistic young core members were brought into this situation where they were told they were going to be saving young black students. And in fact, they were brought into this situation where they found uh, the students were upset with them because the students felt they had no role models anymore. The former teachers were being displaced, were being pushed out because of them. The parents were, were upset that their students no longer had veteran teachers that were trained and experienced and instead had these, these young students that they felt like were experimenting a, a, on their kids. And the people that I look at, and I think this is a really important thing about, about the book, right, is that I highlight positive alternatives. So the people that I highlight in the book came into this context. They could have just ignored all the criticism and said, well, I'm trying to do my best. They could have just walked away and said, this is terrible. Instead, they went to the, the veteran teachers. They went to the students. They went to the parents and said, what can I do? And the, the parents, teachers, and students said, you're in this very 
specific situation where you can talk to these other young white people coming in. You can organize against Teach for America and this so-called education reform agenda from the inside. And you, and they did this. They built this organization called the New Teachers Roundtable. They built an alliance with the veteran teachers and students. And they became a model that was replicated in other cities. And so that that's a really important thing about this, that, you know, this is not just about criticizing people for their problems, but lifting up alternatives and showing that even when someone falls into a savior mentality, if, if you if you are open, if you listen to criticism, there there's a way that you can completely change force and turn it into something really positive. It seemed like in Teach for America, the young people, particularly in New Orleans, in this program were kind of like pawns in a political game that they didn't even know they were getting into. Yeah, and that that's exactly right. And I think for so many people, you know, when, when you're you're young or even if you're not young, but you're just getting involved in activism, you're in this new context, you don't know where to look. And and it's so easy to get used as a pawn or, or, in, or in other ways fall into this situation where you're not doing what, what you thought you were. And so that that's why this book exists, I think, to try to give people some guidelines, to try to say in any situation, some of the first questions to ask are, you know, what is this community that you're seeking to help? How are you accountable to that community? How are you taking feedback from that community? What does that accountability look like? What does that feedback look like? Both what is your accountability within the organization that you're working in? And then what is that overall organizational accountability to the community that seeks to work in? I think if people ask those questions, we'll still make mistakes. People make mistakes. That's part of being human, but it will keep people from many of the worst mistakes that are being made. So let's talk about some more examples of that. And there's some really, I mean, every chapter is about another huge problem. One of them is um, sex trafficking, which, as probably most of our listeners know, is a multi-billion dollar industry that involves a lot of kidnapping of the most vulnerable women and girls, taking them away from their homes to places where sometimes they don't speak the language and their papers are taken away. I mean, bad, bad stories. There are people combating or working to end or address sex trafficking, but often the tools are not appropriate to the problem. Yeah, so there's multiple things. First of all, it's part of an overall labor trafficking industry. And, and so the, this focus on sex trafficking, right, it obscures the fact that oftentimes the clothes we're wearing, the food we're eating is also from trafficking, right? And it, it's it's a way to let us off on the much larger amount of trafficking that, that that's happening, right? That the majority of trafficking is not in the sex trades, but is in other forms of labor. And so because we Americans especially are so obsessed with sexuality, sexual impropriety, whatever you want to call it, we focus on that? Yeah, exactly. And I, I and you know, I, I look at the the history of that. I mean, the FBI was formed, you know, its first mission was enforcing the Mann Act, which was called the White Slavery Act, which right was this, this idea of uh, protecting women that, that that no woman would ever do sex work willingly and that ev- everyone was trafficked. And there's still a lot of that that attitude, right? This Hate this blurring of the line between people that are being forced, and obviously nobody should ever be forced to have sex. Nobody should ever be forced to do any sort of labor. Nobody should be forced to any of that, right? But this blurring of the line between those that they're forced and those that are that are making this choice. But the bigger issue that I talk about in the book is that in both these situations, uh, if you talk to the people most affected, 
they say being arrested is, is not the way to help. That the way to help people is to give people options, is to give people, as you and I, I talked about before, is to give people safe houses, give people jobs, give people other opportunities, give people places that they can be. That it turns out when you go to police to solve a problem, the main thing they knew how to do is arrest people. And even when the policy is don't arrest these people, they're victims, the police still end up arresting them. It goes back to the very early days of the Anti-White Slavery Act when women were deported when they were supposedly rescued then, and it's still happening today. And so when you have people, women, young women, girls, who've been trafficked, the way that all these like nonprofits and people who are trying to address human trafficking, sexual trafficking, what they do is they basically put it in the hands of the police? Yeah, the, and what, we have this bipartisan moment right now where, where funding, both liberals and conservatives are supporting funding to fight sex trafficking. It makes sense, right? It, it's something everyone can easily say that they're against. But almost all that funding goes towards more policing, more prisons, more prison cells, more arrests. And it just turns out that arrest is not a way to, to fight sex trafficking. Even in the most positive models that, that are lifted up, by those that, that favor um, more enforcement, like the Swedish model, even in Sweden, the Amnesty International report that I quote from in the book talks about how um, especially immigrant women were targeted, were arrested, were harassed, were evicted from their homes, were deported, all under this law that supposedly was about end demand and quote, arresting Johns and, and rescuing women. But even in that situation where that's the, the stated law and policy, it's still the women that were targeted, still the women that were deported, still the women that were evicted, still the women that were arrested. What does that look like in the places where you've reported in the U.S.? Tell us some of the stories. So I talk about uh, Project Rose in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and I tell it, you know, a lot of this book um, focuses on individual stories and you know people that I've met that have been fighting on these issues. And so I spent time with Monica Jones, who's a black transgender woman. She was arrested for, quote, walking while transgender. In other words, just being a black transgender woman walking down the street. She was profiled as a sex worker, was arrested, was arrested under this program, Project Rose, that claims to be about helping sex workers. And the way they, they quote, help sex workers is by arresting them and then offering them this range of social services. and. Uh, I spent a couple days with Project Rose, talked to the women that were supposedly being helped, and they did not feel like they were being helped. They felt like they were being kidnapped. Uh, they felt unsafe. Um, uh, they didn't feel like any of the services that were offered were helpful to them. And many of them were ending up in prison. They were arrested, taken to this church where they were offered in a range of social services, forced to go through this program that was very hard to make it through. And if they didn't make it through the program, they were arrested, they were put in jail. Also, if they had previous arrests on their record, they would go to prison. So even if they defined themselves as being trafficked, they would often end up in prison. There's also, as you write about in some detail, a lot of police brutality and rape of prostitutes, and then they have nowhere to go because we're going to go to the cops. This is the cop who, who assaulted me in the first place. Right, so Daniel Holtzclaw in Oklahoma is the famous example of, of an officer who had preyed on sex workers and, and sexually assaulted many of them and eventually uh, eventually was caught. Mostly was he was uh, preying on, on working-class black women. Uh, but, you know, I, I also go 
few some statistics in the book and talk about how it is. It's a widespread problem. Uh, almost any sex worker you speak to, they'll talk about their biggest fear is is not clients. It's it's police um, and the women that have been trafficked don't see police as, as a, a source of rescue. And, you know, in Alaska, I also spent time with um, a woman who had been trafficked and was fighting against uh, an anti-trafficking law in Alaska because she pointed out this anti-trafficking law that was passed in Alaska. The first, I think it was five women that were arrested were all sex workers that were basically arrested for trafficking themselves. So these laws in practice just don't end up helping these women. And, you know, I talked to um, a public defender um, who had been in New York, who had been working with many of these women who had seen thousands of cases. And she says, you know, if, if we want to do something about trafficking, we need to do something about poverty. We need to address these issues that, that put these women in these situations and give them a path out. And those are the kinds of things that are so hard to address. I mean, a lot of the problems that people are trying to solve in whatever their activist organizations are. I mean, we're talking about mega problems, deep racism, deep poverty, environmental destruction. And I think a lot of people kind of, especially people who benefit from those things, see them as like, well, that's just the way things are. And so this question of like, how do you address those deep underlying issues? What do you see? What kind of positive and effective activism do you see that's addressing the deep these deep underlying causes well let me say i i don't consider myself an expert on any of these things and and part of what makes me really fortunate as a journalist is i get to spend time with really brilliant people and i i'm really fortunate to have gotten to spend time with brilliant uh sex worker activists these people most affected these people have faced trafficking and so you know, on, on these issues, the best experts is the people themselves. And, uh, you know, I also want to say, you know, there are, many of them are women, but also, um, you know, there's men that are they're in, in similar situations, right? But it's it's often gendered as female. But, uh, uh, you know, so organizations like the Sex Worker Outreach Project, like the Red Umbrella Project, like Best Practices Policy Project, all, all organizations that I talk about in the book, are on the front lines doing this work, working with, with the most affected community. And if people want to fight trafficking, those are the organizations that, that they should help. And, and those are the people that really need to be the experts on this issue. And so, you know, I don't want to be presenting myself as, as an expert in sex work. Just like in the book, I talk to Black Lives Matter uh, folks, but I don't want to, cons- you know, I'm a white cisgender male. I don't want to put myself out as an expert on what it is to be black in this country. I don't want to put myself out as an expert on what it is to be a sex worker. Uh, you know, and, and part of the, the point of this book is, you know, I think what I am some level of expert on is what it is to be coming from a position of privilege and trying to do something about that. And, and I, you know, uh, it's only because I, I've tried and failed myself and, and tried to learn from, from my mistakes. And so this book, in, in a way, is, is one person from a position of privilege trying to reach out to other people from a pr- position of privilege, saying, you know, I made these mistakes and... and and I, I've tried to learn from them. Let, let's let's all learn from them together, and let's listen to these communities most affected. And and if, you know, if we're talking about sex work, the experts that we need to talk to are the the sex workers themselves, the 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 people that have faced trafficking, the people that are that are on the streets. When you say you've made mistakes yourself, talk about that. What kind of mistakes have you made? You know, one thing I, I've fallen into is this is this white fragility. You know, so when I get criticism, I think my 
first instinct is to uh, is to freeze up, right? To either say, I want to, you know, walk away because I've, I've put all this work and effort and now people are being critical of me. So I want to walk away or I get angry at the person that, that gives me the criticism. And, you know, one thing that I, I've, I've tried to learn and try to remember is that if someone gives criticism to me, even if it's difficult to hear, that um, that they're giving that criticism because they believe there's some reason in saying that, that there's a purpose that they believe I could do better. You know, they wouldn't bother talking to me if, if they didn't think I could do better. So I try to take all criticism in that. And so I think that's one thing those of us from position of privilege need, need to do. And that, that's one thing that I try to do is to try to, to take that criticism um, and, and listen to it and learn from it. The other thing is, is to really question what it means to take risks. I think that this is a moment where we really need to take risks. I think um, many communities in this country are in danger. I think in some ways the fate of the world is in danger through climate change, through increased war, right? All these things. And so people from position of privilege that are the least likely to be affected by the this Trump agenda need to really find ways to take risks. And I think that when you're coming from a position of privilege, equality can feel like oppression. You know, just giving up a little bit of that privilege, even though you still have advantage, feels feels really difficult because we've had privilege all of our lives. So, you know, I try to ask myself, how am I taking risks? How am I taking interpersonal risks? How am I taking career risks? How am I taking financial risks? How am I taking physical risks? And if, if I feel like I'm taking risks enough, you know, I ask myself, am I taking the same risks as Tamir Rice, who is like a 12-year-old uh, African-American kid just playing in a park who was killed by police because he was black, right? So so what does it mean when you're from a position of privilege to take risks? And so, so one of the things I'm, you know, I'm asking myself is how can I take more risks in this moment? So how can you? What do you, tell us about your own life. Well, um, I think, you know, some of it is really, is really speaking out. Um, one, one example I give in the book is the story of Brandon Darby, who was uh, an FBI informant who was active in New Orleans in, in the years after Katrina. Um, and he was somebody that, uh, you know, we didn't know at the time he was an FBI informant, but he was... Uh, you know, an older man that was having all these relationships with younger women. He was uh, causing a lot of conflicts and movements. And I think, I think myself and others didn't speak out enough against him. And I think it's, you know, uh, I think, you know, I was afraid to speak out. I was afraid of, of taking that risk of speaking out against him, of what people would think about me if I speak out. And I think too often when, when we're coming from position privilege, we're afraid to, to speak out when something wrong is happening. So this guy was posing as an activist but actually was an FBI informant well so some of the you know it, it, it's hard to know the exact so yes he was posing as an activist and he was an FBI informant when exactly he became an FBI informant is in question so was he at one point an activist and then became an FBI informant posing as an activist or was he always an FBI informant from the beginning you know the, these are these are hard to know but yes at some point uh, he was an FBI informant who was posing as an activist and a couple um, young men from uh, Texas ended up going to prison because, um, according to them, he uh, and and based on some of the trial testimony, he was sort of encouraging him towards actions that uh, that were illegal. Um, he also uh, was tied up in the the death of Riyadh Hamad, who was a, a Palestinian, um, and and you know he says Brandon says he turned him into the FBI and uh, and then you know. Uh, Riyadh Hamad later died kind of as a result of that. So, um, you know, there, 
he he was involved in in uh, a lot of really hard things in in people's lives um and and too many people including myself didn't speak up uh you know about what we saw even if we didn't see the worst things we saw enough that we should have been speaking up and what you saw was what sexual assault kind of stuff i'm not gonna say sexual assault but just like somebody inappropriately using their position um and also um you know he he was really this this dynamic of the of the savior this paradigm of the savior of of coming in telling people what they were going to do rushing into a situation um and 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 taking charge and i think that just his the patriarchal way in which he was acting was enough in which i and others should have spoken out yeah you there's a term in your book uh you call it disaster masculinity people who men who rush in and they're going to be the leader. They're going to be the savior. It doesn't always work out so well. Yeah, and that that phrase comes from Rachel Luft, who's a, who's a, a professor who a feminist professor who uh, wrote about that and in, in, in term that phrase. And yeah, I, I think uh, um, it's it's easy to get caught up in this thing of you know who can who can rush in fastest, who can gut houses the fastest, all these kind of things, and not ask you know these deeper questions of who's really accountable to the community. It remains that there are some people, and they're, you know, fairly few and far between, but who have real leadership ability. What, in your view, does good leadership look like? What if somebody really does have, I mean, Martin Luther King, you know, a natural leader, we have those people. How do you take that ability and make it accountable to the community and and make it an effective tool for social change. So it's wonderful to have Martin Luther Kings, but I would encourage people to not try and be the next Martin Luther King, to try to be the next Ella Baker. So Ella Baker, I think, was as great a leader as Martin Luther King, uh, but does, doesn't make the headlines in part because her focus was really on lifting up young people, lifting up women, lifting up working class people, and lifting up their leadership. And, uh, you know, both Martin Luther King and Ella Baker were transformative. Both were incredibly important to our movements. Um, you know, both are brilliant and amazing. But I think when we, when we see Martin Luther King as the, as the only model to achieve to, first of all, most of us will never be Martin Luther King. But second of all, you know, um, it, you know, uh, we, we lose the track of, of how much we need the Ella Bakers and how, um, you know, not all of us can be the charismatic person that can inspire millions of, of people by public speaking, but many more of us can do our best to lift up others the way Ella Baker did. And so I think in some ways her her leadership, while while unique and brilliant, is also something that's more replicable and, and something that more of us can do. And as you write about in a number of different ways throughout the book, one of the most important pieces of that is listening which is hard for some people, you know, who have raised, who've been raised to be articulate speakers and to take charge and all of that. It's hard, hard for them sometimes to do. Again, what does that, what does that look like when it works? Yeah. You know, when I moved to New Orleans a few years before Hurricane Katrina and I spent, you know, my first few years trying to, to listen and, and, you know, I, I think that there's a tendency for, uh, for many of us from position privilege to come to a situation and 
and immediately start an organization. I can't tell you how many people I've seen move to New Orleans and within, you know, a month of, of moving there, start their own organization. And I think too, too few people ask, you know, where are the organizations here? How can I support their work? How can I support the work of people from this community and build up their work? And in New Orleans, there, there's a, a great network of people that, for example, are supporting grassroots people of color led organizations by giving rides to their members that they can make the meetings or doing childcare for their members or helping stuff envelopes or put on benefits or, you know, there, there's so many ways that people from a position of privilege can support organizing without having to be in charge and can, can go in and, and, and listen and learn from those people in that community. And, and, you know, take time, you know, I think, um, I, so, you know, another thing I've learned from, from living in New Orleans is just the importance of, of taking time and listening, you know, and, uh, I lived in New York before New Orleans and New York meet activist meetings are very goal oriented and New Orleans, sometimes you'll be in a meeting, uh, and, you know, two hours have gone by and all that's happened has been introductions and that can be really frustrating at first, but. Uh, you know, it builds this community consensus because people really know each other and yeah. they're really able to build this consensus together and move forward together and people break bread together and eat together. And there's this process that came out of the civil rights movement called story circles where people organize through telling their stories together. And uh, and that, that process, um, you know, is, is really transformative and really powerful. I think there's a lot for people from other places to learn from. There's... An interesting story of a young woman from New York, African-American activist, working class, ends up going to Georgia to do some activism there. And even she had to kind of pull back for a second because she realized that she was kind of trying to be the savior and people didn't see her as, you know, necessarily an an African-American who's one of us. But, oh, you're from New York. Yeah, I, I thought it was really important to tell that situation of of uh, a working class black woman from Brooklyn who talked about herself falling into the savior mentality. Because, you know, although this is raced and gendered, it's not entirely race. It's something that all of us can fall into because we're we're you know we're all raised in 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 this context, um, and so uh, you know. It's about it's about race, it's about class, it's about gender, it's about all these things, but it, it's it's also about this context in, in which we're operating in. So you are traveling around the country. You're here in New Mexico right now visiting us and talking with young people, uh, people in universities, students, and so on. What are you seeing here? What are you seeing around the country in response to the presidency of Donald Trump? What kind of involvement are are people getting out of their houses to do what does it look like to you everywhere i've been uh every organization has seen a lot of uh uh people especially white people wanting to get involved in movements wanting to find something to do um there's been new chapters of surge showing up for racial justice which is white anti-racism organization springing up everywhere and and those organizations already existed have you know gone from 10 people at their meeting to 100 people at their meeting you know massive uh, influx of, of new people. Um, and so, yeah, people are really looking at this moment for what to do. And I think right now, many people in this reactive moment, they, you know, people know about protests as a method of change, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think people haven't moved to as much of that next step of, 
you know, how are we knocking on doors, both metaphorically and literally, and talking to new people and having difficult conversations with people. And I think, um, you know, that's what some organizations are, are looking towards, but that that's, I think, uh, you know, where we need, where we need to go, where we, you know, we need to reach beyond, um, uh, the choir and find new ways of, of having these conversations. How do you do that? I mean, having difficult conversations with people whose values and political ideas are opposite of your own. I mean, people, the sort of cliche is Thanksgiving dinner with Uncle Bob or whatever. But I mean, how do you learn to do that in an effective way? How have you learned to do that? Well, it was really helpful to me f to work as a union organizer for years. So I literally... And I, before that, I was a canvasser. So I've knocked on thousands of doors and, and had those conversations. And, and I recommend it to people. It's a really powerful experience to, to do that. And, you know, I, I think there is a lot of power in the labor movement because, you know, it's not just conversations, but it's people, uh, those moments when people realize that their own interests are tied up with their neighbors. And that happens most frequently in labor campaigns, but can happen in other campaigns. And I think oftentimes that's where transformation happens. It's not because you give someone the right statistics. It's because they see that their liberation is tied up with others, or they see that someone is not so different from themselves. Um, you know, I think uh, you know, people, before they go and have these conversations, feel like they need to brush up on statistics. And statistics are great, but what they really need to brush up on is their stories. You know, find your own story. Why is this important to you? And share that story with others. And I think it's really stories that that move people. You know, we, we live in an era of alternative facts, right? So uh, I, I think it's not, it's never been a time to win on facts just because facts is not how people work in general. Um, but it's really a, a time to to win based on stories. And there have been studies that find these situations where people have gone to canvas on issues like abortion and like uh, LGBT rights. And just through long conversations and through sharing personal stories, they have been able to transform people. And so that's... Do you have any examples from your own life of stories that really made a difference in talking to in talking to others? I mean, in some, in to some extent, I think that's that is, you know, what I do. You know, this book is is telling stories. You know, I think telling stories of women who have been trafficked and say that these anti-trafficking laws aren't working, of um, young white volunteers with Teach for America that found what they were doing was not what they thought it would do. Uh, so, you know, that that that's a lot of what I do is, is, as a journalist is to try and tell these stories to people. Um, you know, I worked for Al Jazeera for a number of years, did television documentaries for them. And that, you know, that a lot of what I would do is, is find these people that could tell their stories and, and, you know, do change through those stories. Jordan Flaherty is an award-winning journalist, producer, and author. His latest book is No More Heroes, Grassroots Challenges to the Savior Mentality. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You can find out more at jordanflaherty.org, and we will link to that at radioactivism.net. Thanks so much for listening to the program today. My name is Mary Charlotte. I welcome your comments and questions and emails. You can email me at mc at radiocafe.media. You can also find us at facebook.com slash radiocafe and on Twitter at radiocafemc. Let us know what you think, and we'll see you next time.